When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm a little surprised he's still tweeting about this stuff. It still really gets to him. But just think for a moment how unusual it should be for a president of the United States to cavalierly and repeatedly say things that are simply not true. And again, we have very limited answers. We have a nothing to look at here. It's all fine. Don't worry about it. We got it underhand. Hello and welcome to TrumpCast, the show about the man who thinks Wisconsin shares a border with Canada, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. In a broad historical perspective, Trumpism isn't just the phenomenon of one horrible man coming to power. It's part of a powerful tide, the movement of Western countries away from liberalism, free trade, and multiculturalism, and toward nationalism protectionism, and ethnic exclusivity. Or maybe it's an even bigger reversal, a reaction against fundamental Enlightenment values, like the belief in science and rationalism. We can see Trump against the background of Eastern European countries moving away from liberal democracy in the context of the anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim backlash in Europe, and of course, last summer's Brexit vote in the United Kingdom. Trump's election made white ethno-nationalism a transatlantic phenomenon. But on Sunday, we got a sign in another direction when Emmanuel Macron, a centrist liberal, was the top vote-getter in the first round of the French presidential election. Macron is now poised to easily defeat Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate, in a runoff on May 7th. This is a huge relief for the anti-Trumpism forces. A Le Pen victory would mean, among other things, the end of the European Union. But how much comfort should we really take from the French election? Not so much, says the European historian David Bell. In a moment, I'll be back to ask him why he isn't more cheered by the French election results. But before we jump into today's show, a few announcements. First, Trumpcast is going to be live this Sunday, April 30th at 8.15 p.m. at the Tribeca Film Festival. Join me, Jamel Bowie, and Virginia Heffernan as we take a look at Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. Tickets are available at slate.com slash live. We may even have a special guest. Also, later this week, I'll be talking to Katie Royfe and Philip Gurevich about Herman Melville's The Confidence Man. Whether you've finished reading the book or not, and I'll be impressed if you have, Tune in for our conversation about what this classic American satire can teach us about our president today. My guest today is David Bell. He's a professor of European history at Princeton. Uh, he specializes in French history, and he's joining me today to talk about the French election. David, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. So uh, we all breathed an enormous sigh of relief yesterday, right, that while Marine Le Pen, the right-wing populist nationalist candidate, is in the runoff, 
She came in second, and she came in second to someone who seems like he can beat her in the runoff in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, he is almost certainly going to beat her in a week from Sunday. It would be an, so much more surprising even than, than Trump's election or Brexit if, if she were to win. Almost certainly she won't, she won't even get 40% of the vote against Macron. So does does this sort of people always read a huge amount into elections? And in this case, a couple of percentage points one way or the other would have meant that a much more extreme could have been an extreme left wing candidate was in the runoff with the extreme right wing candidate. But do you read this as some kind of end to the populist wave that began with Brexit last summer? No, I don't. Not really at all. Um I think that in some ways, Macron himself, while he's very much in the center, he's somebody from outside of the established French political parties. He's neither a socialist nor a neo-Gaullist. And he's, I think there was a degree of probably a protest voting going, going in voting for him against somebody like the established socialist candidate, uh, Benoit Hamon. Um, And also, I think it's important to note that between them, the two extremist candidates, Le Pen and Mélenchon, got more than 40 percent of the vote. You know, Mélenchon was coming up very fast at the end. Uh, he could very conceivably, if the if the campaign had gone on another week, he could have edged past either Macron or Le Pen. So it could have been a, two extremists against one another. So I don't really see this as as, as marking as marking any anything in anything like a retreat from the populist wave. Uh, Francois Hollande had a four percent approval rating. I've read. How the hell do you get a four percent approval rating? I mean, that kind of puts things in perspective. It's an achievement. I mean, uh, you got to hand it to him. I mean, you know, you would think it was hard. People were joking about whether a negative approval rating was actually possible. It's like negative uh, interest were, rates, right? Exactly. Well, we've seen negative interest rates in the you know in a couple of places in the past few years. So why not a negative approval rating, right? But Hollande was, you know, he was elected five years ago. He was elected, you know, very much for the reason that he was not Nicolas Sarkozy, who was seen as being this kind of hyper president who was zooming off, you know, on all these tangents without accomplishing anything. And Hollande promised that he would be a normal president, somebody who would, you know, govern sensibly from the center left. But in the end, he, uh, he disappointed absolutely everybody. I mean, the right was, was against him from the start. Uh, but he very quickly, he, he came in with some ambitious sort of quasi populist left wing plans, like a 75% top marginal tax rate. He very quickly retreated from that. Uh, he retreated into a kind of, you know, sort of center, more, you know, sort of classical liberal position, trying to, you know, loosen labor regulations and things like that. But he, but he failed at a great deal of that as well. He, he annoyed people on the right on sort of immigration and cultural issues by, you know, talking a great deal about about the need to respect the immigrant communities. But uh, he, he annoyed everybody on the left by sort of posing as, you know, after the terrorist attacks as this being a person who was going to go to war for the republic against against uh, terrorism. So so in the end, he had no support left at all. I mean, we in America tend to view these European elections by analogy, right? Even though they're very different political systems, very different histories. But how much is this the movement that supported Le Pen, that still supports Le Pen in the runoff analogous or the same as, or, and how is it different from the Trump movement? Well, I think in a lot of ways, it's it's incredibly similar. I mean, the same factors that drove Trump in the United States have actually been working for a very long time, for much longer. I mean, Marine Le Pen succeeded her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, as head of the National Front. And Jean-Marie Le Pen, I mean, he first really started, you know, sort of shocking people with his successes. 
back in the 1980s. Um, and then in 2002, he was one of the two candidates in the runoff election for the presidency. So, you know, and very much the same factors. I mean, you know, kind of economic stagnation and deindustrialization, the kind of perceived threat from immigrant communities, the you know, the threat of terrorism, anger at entrenched elites, uh, frustration at political paralysis. Um, all these things that, that that drove that drove Trump have been driving the, the Le Pen's for a very long time. I think of of Le Pen, obviously the National Front, which with its fascist connections and, and history as a as a nationalist right wing party, whereas the Trump movement is a populist movement that draws on that, but isn't simply the far right of American politics. Um, I think that's also true of the National Front. I mean, you've often had this phenomenon. I think particularly in in France, uh, where you've had as Pascal once said, the extremes touch one another, right? Les, les extremes se touchent. So you, I mean, already back in the 1930s, you had the communist mayor of one of the most important sort of industrial suburbs of Paris, you know, simply switched sides and became a fascist and became a collaborator under under Vichy and then ended up in the SS. And Le Pen, both Le Pens have, have actually managed to attract a great deal of working class support. They've attracted a great deal of support from former communists. You know, by most indications, they're the largest working class party in France. So while they are traditionally seen as being, you know, a party of the far right, uh, it, it hasn't been true for a while. And Marine Le Pen in particular has has really made a big, strong push in the direction of a kind of economic populism, very similar to what we saw from Trump in the campaign, if not from Trump in office so much. Uh, she, you know, she was arguing against globalization, against sort of the stifling of national initiative by the European Union. Uh, she was calling for measures taken to sort of help the industrial working class. Um, so I think, you know, in, in these ways, too, I think the National Front and Trump are really very similar. And what's their connection like? I mean, I remember Marine Le Pen was, was here after the election, and she kind of hung around in the lobby of Trump Tower, didn't end up having a meeting with him. Um, maybe the, maybe the, her presence was arranged in some way by Steve Bannon. And then Trump on Twitter the last couple of days was vague, but, you know, making encouraging noises about her chances. I mean, did he want her to win? And does she see a connection with him? Um, I don't really know if he I mean, if he if he wanted her to win or not, I suspect he probably did. I'm sure she would have liked his support. But at the same time, the thing about the National Front is that it's really still a very you know, seen by people in France, but also, I think, by, by Americans as being a very poisonous party. Marine Le Pen has tried to do what they sort of call de-demonizing it, undemonizing it, particularly by reaching out to French Jews after her father tended to make all these har- horrible anti-Semitic remarks. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, it's never really been a, a kind of large-scale, serious political operation in the way that other political parties are. It's very much a kind of cult of the leader. And if you sort of go down into the cadres, you don't have to scratch that hard before you find sort of, you know, barely reconstructed neo-Nazis. Like Trump, uh, Penn was Putin friendly, and there was there was a lot of concern that that Russia would intervene in the election on her behalf, parallel to the way Russia intervened on Trump's behalf. Did that happen? And how do you how do you explain their their mutual affection for Putin? Uh, <laughs> world is a strange place. 200 years after uh, the Russian Revolution, now we have now we have Putin and, and these people. Um, I mean, there was certainly there was certainly seemed to be a fair amount of fake news going around the uh, you know the French social medias, but it doesn't seem to have had had much of an effect. From from what I've seen, you know, I think the Russians are probably 
being careful. I mean, because they know that everybody is looking at them now for for evidence of of, of this kind of interference. So one would one's one would suspect that they would be careful and that they themselves would calculate that, given all the attention, any interference would actually be much less effective than it might have been in the American case. But Marine Le Pen, I mean, again, I can't I can't speak for Trump as well, but Marine Le Pen, like her father, she's somebody who who really worships power. I think it's actually, you know, I think it's a mistake to call it a fascist movement. Um, fascism is a pretty concrete historical thing, and there, there are a lot of aspects of it that the National Front doesn't, doesn't share at all. But I think, you know, one aspect that it does share is this kind of sort of worship of naked, brutal political and, and military power. And uh, she likes Putin's assertions of, of power. I think she also likes the fact that Putin is such a cultural you know, conservative who's made an alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church, who hates homosexuals and so on and so forth. I think a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of those aspects of, of Putin's government would appeal to, to Little Pen's you know, father and daughter. And there's an affinity in the sort of Islamophobia, too, isn't there? I mean, if oh, you're, you know, the yeah. Steve Bannon, white nationalist version of the world likes Putin and Russian Orthodox Church and, you know, this sort of version of white nationalism opposed to Chechnya and whatever Islamic influences they are opposed to there. No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you look to Putin, you look to what he did in Chechnya. I mean, you know, he, he you know, invaded, you know, basically an Islamic country that was that was in rebellion against him, and he simply burned it to the ground practically. Um, so they liked that. Yeah. How do you draw the comparison on the on the left, David? I mean, the the populist left candidate Jean Luc Mélenchon. I don't know if I how to pronounce his name. You can you That's can right. pronounce yeah. it beautifully, but um, but he got close to twenty percent of the vote. But he's pretty different from say a Bernie Sanders. I mean, for you know, for one thing, they're anti-Europe, maybe pro-Putin too, but certainly pro kind of left-wing dictators in Latin America. Yeah, I mean, he said a lot of you know, overly nice things about, about Hugo Chavez. He, you know, has certainly said a lot of overly nice things about Putin. Uh, he's no friend of the United States, definitely. And uh, his, his, I mean, Mélenchon's rise was actually one, I think, one of the big stories in, in this whole thing. Um, it came very largely at the expense of the of the socialist candidate, Benoit Hamon, who I thought actually was, was very smart and had some very interesting ideas, was willing to experiment with things. You know, he was trying a kind of much softer left-wing populism, but uh, Mélenchon completely crushed him, and it, you know, it may very well have destroyed the Socialist Party in France. Uh, you know, the fact that that Amon could only get six percent of the vote—that was really, that was really an incredible humiliation. I mean, it's getting down into François Hollande territory, right? Yeah. I mean, four percent approval. I mean, so. Um, but Mélenchon was a really big story here, I think. So Mélenchon was proposing uh, one of those policies that got a little bit of attention, which just seems absolutely insane to Americans, a 100% tax on incomes over 400,000 euros. I mean, is that just – Is presumably that's not a very realistic proposal. Is that just like an expression of class war, you know, going back to the French Revolution? That is, we're simply going to confiscate the money of rich people. I think so to a large extent. Also, I mean, I mean, he he himself went back and forth um, on this. I mean, sometimes he said ninety percent, which 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 still sounds ridiculous. Although, of course, you know, it was that under the Eisenhower administration in the United States, um, the top marginal tax rate. But he knew it was totally impossible because, for one thing, François Hollande came in and, and as proposed a seventy-five percent top marginal rate, and the Constitutional Council actually shut that down. It said he had to go down to fifty percent, and then you know that they didn't even get up there. 
So um, I think it was, you know, very much simply a kind of signal to his followers. This is where I stand. I, I, I'm really going to do something about, about economic inequality. Just watch me. David, you wrote a really interesting piece after the election I read. I think it was in uh, Foreign Policy, where you were sort of looking at this as a historian. And I remember you saying Trump is a, a strong case for the kind of great man history, theory of history. I mean, not that he's a great man in the sense of being admirable, but the idea that individual actors are tremendously important in history as opposed to structural factors, which is sort of what historians were trained to think in in our era and, and, and further back. Can you sort of talk about that a little bit? I mean, do you think we are sort of back in looking at this from the perspective of the academy? Is Trump a sort of – is Trump's rise a kind of rebuke to the way a lot of your – colleagues in in the field analyze things and look at things um i think in part sure yes absolutely i think i think that this is i mean it's one of the one of the weaknesses of academic training in history is is that we are we really do focus so heavily on on the structural factors and don't really look sufficiently to the to the contingencies to the play of personality you think about how how much state power has increased um, just over the course of the past, you know, 150 years, what states can do. Now, on the one hand, that is a kind of structural process, but on the other hand, it puts, often can put this vast amount of power in the hands of, of single individuals who may be unstable or may have strange ideas of one sort and, and who can, who can send the world spinning off its axis in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, you look at Trump and on the one hand, it seems given, given the factors that have been common to so many Western countries, um, and Eastern European countries that, you know, that, 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 pop, you know, populism was going to be a, a major factor in American politics. In that sense, you know, you, you know, you don't need to look at, at the character of any particular person. But then we can see, you know, somebody, I mean, it would have been almost impossible to predict that the person who was going to actually emerge would be somebody like Trump. And he is, you know, he, he looks to be somebody who, who is actually so unstable and so, you know, frankly, so ignorant that, it's almost impossible to to predict what he's going to do. So in that sense, yeah, I think we we have to take those kinds of personal contingencies into into account very much. But wouldn't the more structural analysis say, look, you know, we have this phenomenon of this this populist anger bubbling up around the world and if it hadn't been Trump in this election, it would have been somebody else representing that viewpoint in the next election or the election after that. Because this was simply was something we underestimated in this country, but it's part of a of a global movement, you know, maybe akin to the great ideological revolutions of the past century. Well, absolutely, but 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 once that that bubbling up actually happens and focuses on a single person, then the character of that person, the actions of that that particular person, can matter a great deal. I mean, you know, again, I mean, I don't want to make I don't mean here to to compare. Trump directly to Hitler because I don't generally like the, those kind of comparisons. But there were certainly major structural factors that were that made the the the, the life expectancy of the Weimar Republic look look very low back you know in the 1930s in the conditions of the depression and ideological strife. So it was very likely, um, particularly given the backing of of the army and big business and then Prussian aristocrats, that that some right wing strongman was going to come to power in Germany. If it hadn't if it hadn't been Hitler, yes, it probably would have been somebody else. But would that somebody else have done what Hitler did? That's a very different question. And back to France. I mean, 
are we off the hook for the moment? Can Americans go back to ignoring it safely and not not worrying about anything terrible happening there? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, it looks like, you know, the center has held the blood blood dim tide will not be loosed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because this, you know, this certainly very smart centrist candidate will will become president. But you know, the major party system in France, which has existed, you know, pretty since the early 1970s, so it's not not as stable as the American system. But you've had, you know, two major parties: the neoliberalists, whatever you want to call them now, the Les Républicains, they call themselves, and the socialists have basically alternated in power, um, and you know, both in the presidency and in the National Assembly, and. Both of those now look to be incredibly weakened and possibly finished. Uh, you know, for the first time in the history of the Fifth Republic, you've had a Gaullist candidate or a Gaullist allied candidate who who didn't actually get into the second round of the election. The socialist candidate was humiliated. Um, so that that already suggests a big degree of instability. And Macron, I mean, you know, the first thing he's going to have to do after he wins election, assuming he wins election, is going to be to fight a, a parliamentary election in early June. And, you know, the question is, how is he going to do this? I mean, there's a large part of the Socialist Party that hates him. Uh, They probably will not support him. He's going to have to try to either, you know, sort of do some sort of movement that's above politics and try to sweep that in, which is possible, but not all that likely. Or he has to try to piece together some sort of coalition between sort of various centrist factions and part of the Socialist Party and maybe part of the Gaullists. So, I, I, you know, and... uh, I think he's going to have a, you know, most likely have a very weak government behind him. And then if he tries to do any serious reforms, uh, he could very well run into major trouble. Um, You know, in one sense, you know, the government will be fixed probably for the next five years. But, uh, you know, I I would not be at all surprised if, you know, a few years from now, his popularity is heading down to where François Hollande is, Um, that everybody sees this as a huge disappointment and, you know, just a horrible, horrible mess yet again. And in that case, if it happens yet again, and yet another president goes through this after the sort of excitement around Macron this time, then I think the, the extremes could really profit. You know, again, the two extremist candidates got 40% this time. You know, over 50% five years from now is not at all impossible, or, or even earlier, if things get so bad that, that conceivably Macron could be forced to resign, which is, which is something which has happened in in French politics before. Look at, you know, with de Gaulle, for instance. Yeah. Macron looks like kind of a Bill Clinton, Tony Blair figure. I mean, a sort of third way centrist liberal, um, pro pro free, free market, culturally liberal, a little vague and platitudinous, but also, you know, with political talent, the ability to be forward looking and having, you know, a certain amount of charisma. Is that is that the right interpretation of what his politics might be like? I think that's very much, you know, right on the mark for what his politics might be like. But it operates in a system which is pretty different from the British or American ones. So in in the American system, when you call yourself a centrist, that usually implies that you're sort of ready to sort of get your hands dirty and do some deal making and compromise to bring the different, you know, different sides together, taking a little bit from one side, a little bit from the other side. And the and the French gen, French centrists generally don't don't operate like that. They sort of see themselves rising above the political fray, bringing everybody together in this kind of magical harmony through the sheer force of their personality and rhetoric, the way the way De Gaulle did. And, you know, I think the, the, that's the way that Macron will try to actually implement these policies, not by you know not not by doing sort of compromises between right and left, but by trying to do this sort of grand 
harmonious coalition of all the forces in the country. And that sets up a huge possibility for disappointment and and, uh, disillusionment. David, I saw in your Princeton biography that you're now working on a book called Men on Horseback. Is that uh, is that going to just be Napoleon, or is that going to get us up to Trump? It is definitely not going to get us up to Trump. It, it's a project which uh, looks at you know many of these sort of great commanding charismatic figures, but in the age of revolution. So it it, it will take George Washington into account. It will take Bonaparte and, and Toussaint Louverture and Simon Bolivar, but it will stop you know in the early nineteenth century. I've been speaking to David Bell. He's a professor of European history at Princeton. David, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Thank you, Jason. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Thank you.